0: Uh, we, uh, my name is Chase Gardner. If you don't know, I'm an area pastor here at Oak Community Church, and it is my privilege to wrap up the 10-week-long James series. How have you guys enjoyed the series so far? You liked it? Good. A Completely different question by a round of applause. How many of you guys are knocking it out of the park of uh, applying all the truth of James to your life in the past 10 weeks? Anyone? All right. A little bit different reaction. That's okay. Um, James is a is a odd book in the New Testament. It's a bit different. When you first get saved, um, a lot of people recommend that you read the, the Gospel of John or a book like Philippians, and you come to the end of the Gospel of John. I don't know if you ever read it, but you just have these, these lovey-dovey feelings. You're like, God is so good, and you want to hug John and take him out for coffee. Um, James is a little bit different. Um, I, I used to struggle with the book of James. I was I was really passionate about my Christian life in high school, trying to follow the rules and regulations, and, and you read through Paul's letters, and he kind of gives you some advice, and you get to James, and James is is, James is like, uh, you need to tame your tongue, which you're not doing a good job of. You need to shop, uh, stop showing favoritism. You're stingy with your money. You need to be generous. And you might die tomorrow, so you uh, better not make any business plans or anything. Then he like, drops the mic, and he's out. And at the end, you're just like, what just happened? Can I get a little help here? You know, I'm, I'm still barely doing my quiet time. So uh, if over the past 10 weeks you feel like you got hit by a bus, that's okay. Uh, welcome to the club. Um, but a few years ago, um, I was able to teach through the book of James. Um, all the way through from, from the first part to the last part. And uh, I learned some really cool things and I just felt in love with this book probably a year and a half ago. So, so this weekend I want to kind of share with you some of the stuff that I learned. And I learned that, that James is a different author than the other authors. If you look at someone like um, Paul. Uh, Paul wrote the majority of our New Testament. He used to be Saul. Um, and Paul's, Paul was a really, really smart guy so he was raised Jewish. He had that, that uh, religious upbringing, that re- religious background. And he went to the best schools uh, that the Hebrews could offer. Um, and so he was this religious scholar. And when, when God saved him, because he was really zealous for the Jewish faith, he was persecuting Christians. Uh, when God saved him and Jesus spoke to him, um, God tasked him with a certain um, plan in life. And his calling was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, not the Jews, but the Gentiles. And so uh, Paul's main purpose in life was to explain this Jesus to people who have never had any religious upbringing in, in, the, in the Orthodox faith, in the, in the Jewish faith. Uh, these were Gentiles, these were Greeks, these were Romans who worshipped hundreds of different gods. And so uh, they had no idea who the God of the Old Testament was. They had never read the Old Testament. And so even though a lot of Paul's books seem pretty deep and pretty profound and uses these big words, actually uh, all of Paul's books are kind of Christianity 101 and 201 and 301. They're just the fundamentals of Christianity. He, He clearly explains everything. Now James is a little bit different. Um, James, we know, is the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't have the educational upbringing that Paul did um, but, uh, because he was the son of a carpenter. But by the time he writes this letter, circumstances have changed. And James, at this point in his life, is the leader of the most important church in the known world, the Church of Jerusalem. So he's like the pope at this time. He's a very, very important guy. In fact, he's kind of like Paul's superior. Um, Every time Paul leaves on a missionary journey, he goes and talks to James and the church of Jerusalem. Every time he returns from a missionary journey, he goes and talks to James. And so James is different. James is not writing this letter to Gentiles. He's writing this letter to Jewish believers who have been Jewish their entire life. And they have this foundational understanding, uh, this religious knowledge of God. They understand God's character from the Old Testament. They understand uh, all of his actions in the Old Testament. A lot of them have memorized large portions of the Old Testament. So so James has this habit of skipping over Christianity 101, 201, and 301, though he'll refer back to it and just launching right into like a doctoral level class on Christianity. If you read the letters of Paul and you read the letters of James, this comes to light. Uh, Paul explains absolutely everything from start to finish. He explains who God is and what he's like. He explains um, our problem, sin, and why we need a Savior. He explains who the Savior was, uh, how Jesus came and died on a cross, why he needed to do that, how we play a part in this, how we get into this thing that we call salvation through faith. And then once he's moved us through those things, then and only then does he go into application. And James launches straight into application, right? And so uh, if, you, if you feel like you got hit by a bus, there's a reason for that. It's because you were taking a doctoral level class in Christianity. So what I want to do this weekend is kind of put that foundation in place. Uh, James assumes that his readers know certain things, and I want to I put those things in place. So, so this weekend I want to do two things. I want to give us that foundational understanding. I want to give us that Christianity 101, 201, and 301 so that 401 will make sense, so that we can actually apply 401. And then I also, uh, my hope and prayer is that we can all walk out of here with a sense of hope. That when we read James and we see the, the commands and, and the, the callings to obey God, that when we read this letter, um, we'll actually uh, believe that what Jesus did in James's life, he can actually do in our lives and through us. In fact, James calls us a lot of times in this letter, um, beloved brothers. So what the Holy Spirit was able to do through James and through these early believers, he is more than able to do through us. So you guys ready? All right, Christianity 101, um, what is our problem? If you, if you read the book of James, it's very, very obvious that James assumes his readers have some problems. Is it not? He doesn't write a letter that says, hey, guys, you're doing great. You're knocking it out of the park. I'm going to come to town and we'll just rejoice together. That's not the book of James. Uh, his readers have a problem, and he assumes that that his readers understand this and know this. Um, when's the last time you were asked that? I'm like Chase, what's your problem? Anybody been asked that before? Usually in not-so-nice a tone. Um, We get asked this sometimes, and and in fact, there's probably people in your life, not probably, there's definitely people in your life that will freely offer their opinion as to what your main problem is, right? Are you married? Okay. Uh, Do you have teenagers? There are people in your life that will offer this information, and they'll usually say something like, Chase, you know what your problem is? You are just too stingy. Or you know what your main problem is, is that um, uh, you don't spend enough money. Or uh, see a theme here. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know what your main problem is, is that um, you have no respect for authority. You know what your main problem is, you're just too lazy. Or you know what your problem is, is you just don't have enough self-discipline. And people offer this advice all throughout our lives. And, and on the first glance, um, if you just read through James one time, um, it would seem as if James is offering no different advice. It appears as if James is saying the exact same thing. You know what your problem is? You're too impatient in trials. You know what your problem is? You say dumb stuff all the time. You know what your problem is? You're not generous enough, or you hear the word, but you don't do it, or you play favorites and show partiality. But actually, if you continue to read this book, not just once through, but a few times through, you'll see that this is not what James is saying at all. Yes, he does say all those things, but, but what James hints at, as he points us back to Christianity 101, is that all of these bad things that he speaks about in his letter, they're not our main problem. These things are simply the fruit of a deeper root. Uh, they're simply symptoms of a deeper disease. And like all diseases, you have to deal with the root cause and not just the symptoms. And so James says time and time again, yes, you're impatient. Yes, you put your foot in your mouth uh, and you're stinging. You don't obey God's word, but there is a reason for that. That's not your problem. And James assumes his readers understand that the fact that they do bad things is not their deepest problem. And how many people live their lives without this knowledge? They think that, that if they can just uh, conquer their bad habits with, through self-will and self-discipline, that they'll be good. And, and I've lived like this. I've lived years of my life just trying to modify my behavior, modify my behavior, control the symptoms, control the symptoms. And I've wasted years of my life doing this. But James points us to the root problem. Now, he's not going to unpack it like Paul or Peter or John would because he assumes his readers understand this. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to James. Uh, We're going to be all over the place this morning. Um, But look in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says this. When tempted... No one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by their wives, no, Uh, by their husbands, no, by the bad crowd that they hang out with, no, by demons, by Satan, by the bad culture we live in. No, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And so there's there's these layers here. The root problem is we have a heart that desires evil things, bad things. And we have a broken heart. It's a heart problem. And this heart problem is the cause of all these symptoms that we call sin. And so the problem is that we have bad hearts. Now, a lot of us will freely claim to be sinners. But what we mean by that when we say that is that deep down inside, we're actually really, really good people. We're really good people. We just have a, a, some bad habits and stuff. And then if we can get our, our discipline in check, then, then we can conquer these bad habits. But, but James as hits the nail on the head here. He says that our root problem is that our heart of hearts desires and runs after bad, bad things, wrong things. It's not just that you do bad things, it's that you really, really, really want to do those bad things because you really, really, really love the momentary happiness that those things bring us. It's called sin. And this is not a you thing, it's a me thing as well. My main problem is not my habits or other people or lack of discipline. My problem is my heart at its core runs after things that are not God. So James um, unpacks this even more in chapter 4. We went through this a few weeks ago, but let's look there again. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? So James says, let's go back to Christianity 101. Here's a symptom. You fight and your marriages, with your kids, with your coworkers. You tend to fight. So here's a symptom. He says, what's the root cause of that? What, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And so, the picture he gives here is anytime that you fight with your coworker, it's because you are looking for affirmation, or you are seeking after respect, or you are seeking after more money, and your coworker is standing in the way of that desire. That's why you fight. Same with your marriages, same with your kids. You want something, and that person is standing in the way, you desire something. Uh, then in verse two, he says this, you want something, but don't get it. And then he kicks it up a notch and says, you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. And so James says this root uh, cause, the sinful heart is not just the cause of marital spats or disagreement in the workplace, but it's the cause of World War I. It's the cause of the prison camps in North Korea. It's the, it's the cause of uh, the Children's Army in Africa. Uh, the, this bad, sinful heart is the reason why anyone does anything wrong ever. It says you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. But then he says it's not just a non-Christian thing. This is a Christian thing as well. He says you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend uh, what you get on your pleasures. And he, he paints this picture of even Christians. When you pray, rarely do you ask God for patience. Rarely do you say, God, make me a humble person or God, grow me into the image of Jesus Christ. Rather, we go to God and say, God, can you just uh, allow me to get this promotion at work? When in the back of your head, you're thinking, if I get this promotion, I get that money and I can buy that boat I've always wanted. Or we go to God and say, help me do really, really good with this presentation. When in the back of our heads, we want that respect. We want that acclaim. We want that applause. And then he he ends it with this very pointed word, you are adulterous people. You adulterous people. So that's our problem. Our hearts are broken. There's a reason we do bad things, and if we just concentrate on the symptoms and never go to the root cause, we will always be in trouble. And so you have to know that. That's Christianity 101. You see why it would be dangerous to approach the book of James thinking that um, you read this and I have to tame my tongue? I got this. Inside me, I got this. Right? Uh, you have to be generous. I got this. I can do this. That's a dangerous approach to the book of James because either you kind of pull it off and you become very, very prideful and very, very judgmental or odds are in three or four months you're going to fall flat on your face. You're going to think you're a horrible Christian because you haven't addressed the root cause. So look at your neighbor right now and say, all my problems are heart problems. Okay, I'm going to say that. There you go. Uh, If you have high cholesterol, I didn't mean to offend you. (laughs) I just got that. Uh, Okay, so that's Christianity 101. I'd love to talk for a few hours about that, but I can't. Um, So let's move on to Christianity 201. What in the world are we supposed to do about it? If that's our root problem, what do we do about this? I mean, I can grasp self-discipline. I can grasp that. I can grasp trying to apply God's word to my life. I understand that if I'm producing some bad fruit, I can try to root that fruit out of my life and really, really try to produce some good fruit, some better fruit. But how do I fix the problem of a sinful and a broken heart? How do I change this root problem? I, it would seem to me that I can't help what I desire. It's very, very hard for me to change what I want. Well, welcome to Christianity 201. You can't. You can't do anything about this problem, you can't fix your marriage. You can't stop playing favorites. You can't become generous. You can't tame your tongue. And you certainly cannot fix your sinful heart. But there is a solution to this. And James obviously thinks that there's a solution. In fact, the way in which he writes this letter, he assumes that his readers have experienced this solution. They know the solution. They've been through Christianity 201. And so James unpacks this for us. And I, I love the Bible. Because never in, in a million years would any human being ever think of this solution. Um, here, here's what James says throughout his letter. Um, on our own, with our, our sinful desires and our sinful passions uh, kind of wreaking havoc in our life with all these symptoms, there, there's really no hope. There's nothing that we can do about it. In fact, my mentor used to have a saying. You probably heard it. It says, you can't polish poop. Anybody heard that? I know Mythbusters disproved that, but I'd still bet it was shiny, but it was smelly. Okay, So you can't make shiny, unsmelly poop. Um, Can't do it. In fact, James points this out in uh, chapter 4, verse 9. He says this um, in the midst of telling his people to submit themselves to God. In verse 9 he says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's not anyone's life verse, is it? No. But what James is pointing out is that when we come face to face with our sin, it seems hopeless. Our only hope is for a miracle to happen. Our only hope is for someone to intervene. And that miracle has occurred. Look over in chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. James just alludes to this. He doesn't unpack this. He just kind of mentions it. Remember Christianity 201. Verse 16, it says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shadows. And and what James is saying here is that if you want to fix your marriage, the solution does not lie within you. If you want to tame your tongue, the solution does not uh, come from inside you. If you want to fix your sinful and your broken heart, you can't do it. The solution comes from the heart of heaven. It says this in verse 18. Here's the miracle that occurred. He, God... "'chose to give us birth through the word of truth "'that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he, cre- all, all he created.'" And the picture that James is giving us here is is here's a God that chose to bring you back to life. When you were running away from him, not based on anything that you had done or didn't do, not based on anything that you would do or wouldn't do, not based on how good of a Christian you might become one day, God freely, out of his grace and his mercy, chased you down as you were running away, placed his hand on your heart and shocked you back to life. And he gave you new desires. He gave you a new heart, and he brought you into his family. That sounds crazy, but it gets even crazier. uh, With the last part of this verse, it says this, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So uh, let's go back to the tree metaphor. Here I am, a little scrawny tree. My roots don't reach that deep. I'm obviously producing some bad fruit. All my apples got bruises and worms in them and stuff. And so the way that we usually view salvation is that God's up in heaven. He sees us. We're not experiencing the abundant life or we're just not producing enough fruit. And so God looks down and says, I got to help him out. So he swoops down and he kind of trims us up a little bit and he gets rid of that bad fruit and he, he pours some miracle grow and makes sure we have enough water. Then he goes back up to heaven and waits for us to produce good fruit. But James takes that metaphor and stands it on its head and says, no, that's not what God does at all. He sees us in our bad condition and he comes down from heaven and he cuts us completely down. And then he takes a little bit of us that remains us. And then his grace and in his mercy, he engrafts us into the only vine that could ever bear any good fruit whatsoever, Jesus Christ. And he switches this whole metaphor. No longer are you a tree trying to produce your own fruit. Rather, you are God's fruit. God is the one that brought you to life and God is the one that will live that good life through you. What he started in Jesus, you are a part of now. Now, do you see why it would be dangerous to approach the book of James and not know that? If you think that I can do this, that it's all up to me, and that God's just up in heaven, just waiting for us to fix ourselves that's a dangerous way to live life. But James assumes that his readers understand Christianity 101. You have an evil heart, and you might as well give up. There's no hope, Christianity 201, but God fixed that. And he's engrafted you into Jesus. And he's not demanding any behavior from you that he won't partner with you to bring about. Jesus is going to tame your tongue. Jesus is going to be generous through you. And so you have to know these things. So that's Christianity 101, Christianity 201. And so now on to Christianity 301, what is the goal? Why did God choose to bring us to life? Well, Paul answers this a lot. I kept a list of all the words that he uses as the end goal of God working in our life, and it just got too long. But just a few of them are uh, in chapter 1, verse 4. The end goal of Christianity is maturity and completion. In chapter 1, verse 20, it's righteousness. In chapter 3, verse 13, it's a life lived in humility. In chapter 1, verse 27, it's a life that flows over in love towards others. In chapter 1, verses 25 and 12, James uses this phrase, the law that gives freedom, the perfect law that gives freedom. So the end goal of the Christian life is freedom. Well, freedom from what? Freedom from doubt in the midst of trial. Freedom from the inability to change. Freedom from hurtful language. Freedom from favoritism. Freedom to live a life that benefits others. Uh, In a nutshell, it's freedom from sin. And so James assumes that his readers understand this core truth. You had a bad heart. You were dead in your sin and transgressions. God brought you back to life, and he did that for a reason. The reason is holiness. That's the reason why God does everything in your life. He ordains circumstances and puts people in your life and puts books in your hands and puts you in the midst of a small group or a church for the sake of your holiness. Not happiness, holiness. In the New Testament, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. It's holiness, freedom from sin. And when Jesus said, I came that you might have joy, and joy to the full. He's talking about this concept. This is the abundant life that Jesus talks about. Now, this is why you have to know this. If you put any other word in that blank, you're going to be very confused at how God works in your life. If you think that Jesus brought you to life and engrafted you in the vine of Jesus in order to make you circumstantially happy for the rest of your life, you're going to be a bit confused. Or if you put um, blessings, and you define blessings as health, wealth, and prosperity. That God's main goal is to shower me with riches and health and prosperity. You're going to be very confused with the way that God works in your life. And this is the grand theme of James's letter. You can see this in the very first verse. We know these verses. In James 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever God heaps blessings on you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, "Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, lacking nothing." And so James is writing to um, an audience that has been displaced by um, really, really hard circumstances, and, he, and he's t- he's writing these people saying, "Take joy, be happy in this." Why? Because through these circumstances, God is working for your holiness. God's real. He's active. You're receiving the goal of your salvation, which is holiness. So that's that's why your circumstances this weekend are what they are. It's because God is working for your holiness. And the Bible uses this metaphor a lot. If you spend any time in church, you know this metaphor of the refiner's fire. Um, It's when a, uh, what's it called? Metallurgist, is that a word? We're going to use it. That guy, when he finds silver and gold in the ore state, he puts it in a pot and a heating vessel, and it's impure in its original state. And so um, the guy in charge, he kind of turns it up to one or two, the heat up to one or two. And what looked like pure silver, all these impurities start bubbling to the surface and so they can be scraped off. And then he turns it up to three or to four it's testing the silver. It's testing this gold. And all these impurities rise to the surface. And then he turns it up to seven or to eight or to nine. And all these impurities start rising to the surface. And just when he thought it's over, when he thought that it was pure, when he thought the silver was good and clean, it's not. And he turns it up to ten. And more impurities rise to the surface. And that's, why, that's what God does in our lives. He tests us. You see this term test time and time again in the book of James. He brings trials and tribulations and hard times in our life, not because he's mad at us, not because we've sinned and he's just punishing us, but he brings this in to test us, to bring um, our pride to the surface, to bring our insecurities to the surface so that we can be free of them and have a deeper relationship with him. He gives us the word of God so that we can look at it, and see ourselves as in a mirror. We see our sin, and we test ourselves so that Jesus can remove that sin, so that we can become holy. Or he brings people into our lives, people that we get along with, and people that we don't get along with, and he puts us in relationships with these people, and in any relationship, sin rises to the surface. That's the reason for which God does everything in our lives, and you have to understand this, and here's why. Um, For some reason, I get the amazing opportunity to counsel a lot of people here on a monthly basis. Not that I am equipped to do this. I am not. But the Word of God is. And so God, in His mercy, allows me to do this. And I'll have people come in who don't understand Christianity 101. That they have a root problem underneath all their symptoms. And they'll come in and they've been trying to Uh, kick a, a cocaine addiction or an alcohol addiction you can just see this weight on their shoulders they've they've been to AA they've been to rehab and and they just don't seem to have what it takes to kick this addiction and it's so cool to go to God's word and to open it up and to see their their eyes light up when I say you know what you don't have it in you there's a reason you're feeling that but we have a savior that has it in him and it's cool to see that that weight just lift off their shoulders or I have people that come in that don't understand Christianity 201, that they're, they're a new creation. They're engrafted in the vine, and so they struggle with eating disorders or body image or pornography addiction. is very, very common, and, and their life is just um, characterized by guilt and shame, and they hide from God, and they run from God, and they think that he's so angry at them, and it's so cool to, to open up the word of God and to say, no, God loves you. He chased after you, not based on what you do or don't do, but based on what Jesus did and didn't do. That your identity is a new creation in him, and it's cool to see that weight lift off their shoulders, but the saddest people, and I include myself in this group occasionally, the saddest place that any of us get into in life is when we don't understand Christianity 301, and here's what runs through our head. Here's what runs through our head, and I've heard myself say these words too. We tell ourselves, I'm a good person. I go to church. I serve. I'm in a small group. I tithe. And in my life, something bad is happening. My marriage is falling apart, or my finances aren't in order, or, or I just lost my job. And you can sense this anger in people like this. And when I get there, I can sense this anger at God. And what I hear myself saying and thinking is, I've done these good things. You're supposed to bless me, God. You're supposed to bless me. And that is a complete misunderstanding of the goal of Christianity. And this is what I used to think when I first became a Christian. I viewed salvation as, as here I was in my sin. And, and finally I got to a point where I couldn't take it anymore. So I ran after God instead of him running after me. And I, and I asked him to forgive me. And he did that because of Jesus. And so God kind of swoops down at salvation. He gives me a head start in life. He forgives my sins. But then he goes back up into heaven. He's very absent God. This is what we call deism. He's up in heaven and I'm down here on earth. And he's not going to swoop in and rescue me. He's not going to, I viewed him as a polite God. He's not going to interfere with my life. He's not going to meddle. He's not going to intrude himself into my circumstances until I call out for help. Or if I do a, a lot of good stuff, right? I see this in the Old Testament. If I do a lot of good stuff, then he has to bless me. And it sounds so silly, but it's like, God's not up in heaven keeping a quota of our do's and our don't do's, our good list and our bad list. And once we pray 17 times in a week, God's finally like, yes, finally, I can give you that jet ski you've always wanted, right? That's not what God is like, but that's the way that we view him a lot of times, that he's absent or, or that if I do enough good stuff, he has to bless me. He has to. This is what this whole Christian agreement is. But this is not the God that James follows. This is not the God that his readers understood. Listen, um, turn to chapter four, verse five. This is what James says about his God, and, it, and it's in it's in the context of James calling out for his people to stop being friends with the world and to run hard after God. And look what characteristic he lifts up from God. Uh, it says this in four or five. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously? Longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. James's God is is a God who deeply, at an emotional level, yearns and wants what's best for you freedom from sin, a relationship with him. And from the moment he brings you to life and engrafts you into Jesus, he is intimately involved in every single aspect of our lives he gives us life and then he remains right by our side in scriptures he calls himself more than any other word but more than more than creator more than king more than judge more than ruler he calls himself father That's what Jesus calls them more than any other word. God is a father in the Old Testament. He he proclaims himself as a husband. Now, I'm a husband and a father, and I don't take this polite approach with my wife and my kids. I'm invested in their life. I intrude when I need to intrude. If it's true that God's polite and he he never gets into our life until we call out for help or he's absent in the midst of our life, then there never would have been a cross. There never would have been Jesus. But there is a cross. We have a God who in his grace and in his mercy is intimately involved in every single detail of our lives. And when it seems as if he's absent, when he seems as if he's turned his back, the opposite is true. He's going to shine his light into your heart. He's going to show you your sin. And then he's going to be there as you cry it out, as you repent. And then he's going to wash it clean. He's going to expose your addictions and your crutches, and he's going to supply you with the strength to depend on him. And so, this is not an absent, not an uninvolved God. He's very much present. But, secondly, God is not withholding any blessings whatsoever. He's not waiting on you to pray a certain prayer or to meet your quota of good deeds. Or to put yourself into a position before he could bless you. If that's the case, then salvation would be impossible. He is pouring out the blessings even now. And you see this time and time again in the New Testament. Blessings equal holiness. Blessings equal nearness to God. Now sure in the Old Testament, okay, we have these shadows that point to Jesus. In the Old Testament, it was, if you obey God's law, I'm going to give you a bunch of Goats. And if you obey me, I'm going to increase your family and you're going to inherit a land. But thank the Lord that when Jesus comes, he turns that upside down and says, I got something so much better than herds of cattle. I have eternal life. I have the Holy Spirit. I have have the life of the kingdom. And so whenever I get to that point in my life where I'm doubting that God is blessing me, I ask myself, is God revealing any insecurities right now? Is he using these circumstances to humble me? As he bringing up addictions, as he's bringing to the surface idols, well then I should praise him. I should praise him. And I get here more times than I like to admit. I get to this place where, um, you know, maybe it's been a hard week at work, or or marriage has been hard for a month or two, and I'll find myself in my prayer time saying, "God, I've I've been praying a lot more. I've been reading Your Word. I've been teaching Your Word. I've been faithful. Can I get some blessings, God?" And time and time again in my life, God in his grace and his mercy and his patience says, you want some blessings, son? Let's go back to Christianity 101. Remember when you were running a million miles an hour away from me? Before you ever whispered my name, before you ever looked upon my face and I brought you back to life. Remember that? Remember how I brought you into a church family and brought you into a community of people that love me, who who have used to grow and mature me. And even though right now it may not seem that I'm giving you blessings, and even though now you do not understand why I'm doing what I'm doing in your life, although one day you will when you get to heaven and that will cause you to worship me for eons and eons, right now I am pouring out these blessings. I'm lavishing you with blessings. There's no need to ask for anything else. And see, you have to understand this before you approach the book of James. You don't got this. You can't do this on your own. You got a problem. But God can fix that problem in and through Jesus Christ. And our growth works just like salvation. It is in and through Jesus Christ. And if you do these things, God does not miraculously have to bless you. That's not the goal of the Christian life. It is holiness. In his grace and his mercy, he tests you in it. And I would love to to go into this for (laughs) hours and hours, but, but you have to understand this. It's dangerous to approach the book of James without knowing this. To think that I can actually accomplish these commands, that if I do, God has to bless me in the way that I define blessings, that if I fail, God will be angry and absent from my life. This mindset just sets you up for failure. You cannot apply these biblical principles to your life until you apply the gospel to your heart. Christ has to first be my Savior and my source of help and my strength and my comfort before He can ever be my example. I have to be assured that He loves me before I can obey Him. And I would love to talk for hours, and I'm sure you would enjoy that, but I have to wrap up here soon. Um, at Hope, you heard this. You hear this all the time. We want you to do three things. We want you to come to service, we want you to serve, and we want you to be in a small group. And then once you do those things and you're in the habit of doing that, we offer some other training opportunities. And so in order to go more in-depth into this, me and Julie Biggs are offering classes that are starting next week here at the Raleigh campus. You can get hope.net slash classes and find out about it. I'm going to be teaching one on Monday nights called How Do I Change? It's about how you change. Figure that um, and, and the Bible actually tells us. So for the next six or eight weeks, we're going to be going through this, and then Julie Biggs is going to teach a class on how to study the Bible. She is so wise. Um, so that's going to be Monday nights from seven to eight thirty. Then on Thursday nights, I'm going to be teaching a class uh, called "Real God for the Real World," where we dive into the character of God, and, and we'd love to have you with us. But but hopefully this this will set up your approach to the Book of James better. Okay. Do we have any hope now? Do we have any joy now? Do we have any hope that the Holy Spirit can do this through this? I mean, this changes the approach that we have with the book of James, does it not? Now instead, when you hear these words, tame your tongue. Okay, Chase, tame your tongue. Now I'm not thinking, okay, it's my self-discipline, it's my self-will, and if I do these things, man, I get some blessings. And so I'm going to write it on my hand, tame your tongue, I'm going to put a rubber band on my wrist, and every time I say something bad, I'm going to snip myself, and I'm going to run straight to the self-help book section of the Christian bookstore. Now, instead, I run to Jesus, And I go to him in prayer in the morning and I say, Jesus, you want me to tame my tongue. I want to be free from that sin, but I can't do that. My heart is bad. You're the only one that could tame your tongue your entire life. You have to do this through me, Jesus. Please use your Holy Spirit and your mercy and grace. Do this. And then you get ready for work. And on your way to work, on the commute, you turn your radio down. You say, Jesus, I need your help. I'm planning a conversation in my head right now. I want to tell this person off so bad. You have to control my tongue. You have to be with me. Show me grace. Show me mercy. And then you make it four hours into work, and you might have failed once or twice, but you you were able to stop your tongue, and so you go to Jesus on your lunch break, and you say, Jesus, thank you. That was all you. That was not me. That was not my willpower or my obedience. Thank you for allowing me to encourage that person. And then you get through the rest of your work week, and you go home, and then you hang out with your wife and your kids, and you eat dinner, and when your head hits the pillow, you go to Jesus, and you say, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your strength. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. And you do that day after day after day after day after month after year. And I guarantee you a year from now, you will look back on your life and you will be a different person. And that is not due to you. And it didn't come from here. It is because we serve a faithful God who is working us towards our goal of holiness. So we're going to pray here and then we're going to sing one song, and ask, do not leave during the song. If you need to confess, you're angry with God because he's not blessing you, just confess that. If you want to praise him for the way he's working in your life, praise him, but do not leave. You'll throw Kid City all off. But, but let's pray and sing one more song as we wrap up this James series. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that from the first page to the last page, it is all about Jesus. It's about Christ and Christ alone. Now, the book of James has a way of, if we don't understand Christianity 101 and 201 and 301, we so easily take our eyes and we focus them on ourselves. but there's no help there. There's no power there. There's no strength to live out the Christian life there, and it only comes from Jesus. So during this song, God, I pray that you would, you would take our eyes off of ourselves and focus them on Christ alone. That's where our strength is. We have a Savior who likes to make the weak strong. It's Christ alone for our salvation. It's Christ alone for our sanctification. So God, as we're tempted to trust in our own strength, help us run to your arms. Help us to stay in your embrace. And years from now, as we grow and mature and you take us on this path of holiness, we will look back and we will give you all the glory and all the praise and all the honor.